Well, open your Bibles to the book of Daniel this morning. Daniel chapter 10. We're returning to this great book and we have come to its final vision before we close it out. It is actually only one prophetic revelation, but it covers three entire chapters. But before we get there, since it's been a while, let me warm up your prophetic muscles a little bit and remind you where we have been in the book of Daniel. You will recall Daniel has a very clear structure. If you would take a helicopter ride over Daniel, there are two very obvious divisions in the book. There's the historical portion that you learned in Sunday school that was written for our personal instruction as as God's people. It, It provides an inspired pattern for us to follow, and that is recorded for us in chapters 1 through 6. The The great stories there give believers of all ages some of the greatest examples of faith in the Bible. And they were examples that God would then call Israel and us to put into practice in the second half of the the book. The second part of Daniel begins in chapter 7 and it goes through chapter 12. We've covered about half of that, chapters 7, 8, and 9. We're going to be looking at chapters 10, 11, and 12 now. In those chapters, God foretells exactly what's going to take place in Daniel's future and and ours. So the book of Daniel is not just personal instruction or giving us examples to follow, but but it is a prophetic insight about God's plan. The book of Daniel sets the prophetic timeline for all of of the Bible. And Daniel covers prophecies over three different eras. There's the near future, Israel's immediate future, then there's the, what you might call the mid-future that takes us all the way up to the time of Christ, and then it stretches all the way to the end, the, the coming of the Messiah and the setting up of, of His kingdom. And God does all of that with, with two goals in mind. I think you can summarize the goals of the book of Daniel this way. He wants to teach you and the Israelites uh, during Daniel's day how you're to live as strangers and pilgrims in a world that's not your home. You don't want to get too comfortable in, in Judah where you forget about God. You don't want to get too comfortable in Babylon if that was possible, as you'll see today it is. You don't want to get too comfortable in Lynchburg, Virginia. This world is not your home. You are just passing through. And the book of Daniel teaches us that, how to live that way. Secondly, though, God wants you to know what's coming. I mean, the, the Bible is full of prophecy. And that's not just to in, intrigue us or make prophetic charts. There's nothing wrong with that. But think about why God placed it in the Bible. He wants you to know the future. and He tells you the future. God foretells Daniel what will happen in the end, and He also tells how that end is, is going to, to come. As Jesus says to His disciples, This day should not overtake you. You you know these things. And there will be the reign of God's true king, the son of man, and his earthly kingdom will be established. That's the two goals. The the book has three themes, which you've heard over and over and over. Israel's God is sovereign. He preserves his people. And he is bringing about his his kingdom. And, And we've seen those themes throughout the whole book. God forecasts history... Uh, in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's statue, in chapter 7 with the four great beasts, 
Those two chapters go together. God shows He controls kings and kingdoms in chapter 4 and 5 with the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and then the quick removal of Belshazzar. Uh, God reveals He delivers His faithful ones with the chapter 3 with the young men in the fiery furnace, chapter 6 with the old Daniel in the lion's den. Chapter 8 condenses all three of those themes to, together and it's applied to this lesser evil king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and then in chapter 9, Daniel's 70 weeks, the focus is the prophetic timeline, the Antichrist, and the, the coming kingdom. Well, today in chapter 10, we find Daniel still reeling from that vision and the events that, that, that unfold. And God once again gives hope to His troubled people and reminds them they are not forgotten you recall in chapter 9, Daniel was conducting his daily devotions and, and he's reading about the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says in 70 years the exile would end. And so Daniel immediately goes to prayer and God gives Daniel then a prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks, 70 weeks of the future. Through Jeremiah, God promised not only to restore Jerusalem after a period of chastisement, but he tells Daniel... He will bring about that everlasting kingdom in the future in the same way. That's how the message of Daniel goes. God will restore Israel to Jerusalem after 70 years. But in the future, they'll be unfaithful again. And once again, God will exile them and chastise them. But at His predetermined time, just like Jeremiah said of returning to Jerusalem, God will not only restore Israel, but He'll bring His Messiah to forgive their sins and bring about the final kingdom. So what happened with Israel in, in being exiled out of Jerusalem into Babylon is the same pattern that Israel's going to follow in, in the last days. And that's what Daniel sees unfolding in chapter 10. After the vision of chapter 9, just as Jeremiah foretold, Israelites begin to return to the land. And things aren't going very well. And so wondering and being very troubled... If what he's heard is already taking place, Daniel goes to prayer again two years later. And that's what you find here in chapter 10. And after a purposeful delay, God responds to Daniel and reveals to him in detail what's going to take place. He tells him how it's going to go in the near future in the Persian and Greek empires, which we'll look at next week. And he provides a comforting promise for his prophet about the the far future, the, the very end, even the resurrection of the dead. So the prophetic vision that covers these three chapters, chapter 10 is the preparation for Daniel's vision, and then chapter 11 is actually the prophecy, and then chapter 12 is the final encouragement. Or if you want to look at his three scenes, we're going to look at Daniel's personal preparation and his angel's ministry, and this angel's ministry to him in chapter 10. Then next week, Lord willing, we'll cover Daniel's vision of the future. That will have two parts. The immediate future from Darius, King Darius, right now to Antiochus. And then the far future, the end of times before the second coming of Christ. And then the final revelation is given to Daniel in chapter 12 that mentions the, the resurrection. We'll just look at how Daniel's prepared for the vision today. And it takes an entire chapter to prepare the prophet for this vision because it's so sweeping and so weighty. And we'll learn from that how God prepares His people for troubling times. Here's the outline. I'll leave that up there for you for a little bit. 
God's preparation for troubling times to come. This preparation comes because of Israel's distressing setting. It's in verses 1 through 3. It comes through Daniel's terrifying vision of this angel that he sees in verses 4 through 9. It comes by this angel's strengthening explanation of what's going on, in particular in the spiritual realm. And then it ends with God's comforting reminder that He controls even that sphere. In verses 15 through the beginning of chapter 11, God prepares because of Israel's distressing setting. Look at this in verses 1 through 3 or 4. I'll take you through 4 here. Look if you would at verse 1. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the the vision. Daniel here gives us the time this vision comes. He tells us about the trouble that's going to take place. And then he confirms the location that he receives this vision. Where does he see this? And that's in verse 4. So Daniel begins by telling us that he received this vision. It occurred in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now we know Cyrus came to power in 539 B.C., so the year is about 537 to 536. So Daniel is about 84 or 85 years uh, uh, old. This also tells us it's been about two years since Daniel received the 70 weeks prophecy in chapter 9. That was in the first year. So now we're in the third year. We're two years later. You recall at that time Daniel knows about this promise and he gets the 70 weeks. Ezra chapter 1 tells us how God fulfills that promise to Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, Ezra 1 tells us, God moves this great king to issue a decree, and he allows the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem, just as Daniel prayed, just as Jeremiah foretold. But now two years later, Daniel is praying again about trouble that is on the horizon that's been revealed to him. Look, if you would, at verse 1 again. He says, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. So Daniel's speaking in the third person here. And he gives us insight into why he's praying. He calls himself Belteshazzar, which is the Babylonian name that he received. And he says he received a truthful message about great conflict that's coming. And then he says he understands the content of the vision, and so he's praying about it. And Daniel uses his Babylonian name to to link us to the very first vision that he receives. It's a reminder that, that the return is not complete. He's still Daniel, Belteshazzar, located in, in Babylon, even though Ezra allowed the, the, the Jewish people to go back. And Daniel was given that name when he was brought to Babylon from Jerusalem, and he still has that name. He's been exiled over 70 years. He's still in Babylon without, uh, with many Jews that didn't return, even though they were allowed to return. Daniel entered Babylon with a clenched fist of faithfulness, and he's still faithful even to the end. But in two short generations, many of his Jewish brothers were quite happy in their new world. 
Ezra uh, chapter 1 and 2, if you go back and read that, Ezra tells us how the Jewish people are allowed to go back to Jerusalem, but it calculates as little as 42,000 returned whenever they, were, whenever they were able to go, which is only a small fraction of the Jews who were in Babylon. And so Daniel is grieved that so few people uh, returned after being allowed to go back. And I think the message to that is don't ever think that your environment doesn't affect you. Here's a prime example it does. And if you want another example, you can just ask Lot, whose righteous soul was vexed by Sodom on a daily basis. I mean, Daniel is grieved because much of Israel had been Babylonianized. And so as a Christian, you should beware of the culture's creep, how it can slip into your heart. You may not bow at the, the devil's initial bark, but, but you may be lured away slowly with great ease. I mean, even someone who's born and raised at sea level can, can learn to breathe the empty air of Everest base camp if they stay there long enough and they acclimate. And you can acclimate yourself to the world, even though this world is not your home. And you can miss out even when God's blessings come. Daniel knows this about his people, and he's grieved. But he also receives a message about conflict, a conflict that he wasn't aware of. Again, verse 1, he says the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood it. And this, this sends him to, to fasting for three weeks, whatever this message is that he understands. The text says he received a, a message that was true, and it was about this, a great struggle, an unbelievable suffering, and and it's so hard to believe that, that he has to say up front, it, it's true. What I saw is true. I'm telling you, this is true. Stephen Miller notes that the word conflict is the Hebrew word for, for army or, or it can mean a host of angels. The warfare itself, which that army engages in. So now we have a, an inkling about what Daniel will mention later in more detail. So Daniel learns more details about the great earthly wars that will come to Israel in the future in chapter 11. But even more shocking was the warfare that took place in the spiritual realm. It's a, it's a great struggle, he says. And it's true, I'm telling you. I, I, I comprehended it. And that's what he's troubled about. Daniel had already received a vision about the Antichrist and the end. I mean, Daniel already knows from chapters 7, 8, and 9 about the little horn and the abomination of desolation, and that's like a gut punch. But, but this weakens him at his knees. Daniel needs to be strengthened three times before he hears about the earthly vision that happens, after he understands that this is about spiritual warfare that takes place. And when he's on all fours, he's asking for wisdom here. When he learns about this other conflict that he can't see, this angelic conflict affecting Israel and the nations of the world, Daniel learns that Israel, his people, has an even greater enemy than Alexander or Antiochus. He, it's Satan himself, and there's a battle going on above the earth and in the earth and around the earth and influencing all, all of this. And you can understand why Daniel may be troubled by that, can't you? It's a pretty scary thought whenever you consider it. The reality that angels and demons are all around us is a, is a, is a startling thought, that they're active in human affairs. I mean, Ephesians 2 says, this very moment, 
There are angels looking in to this gathering, to the church of God, because God's manifold wisdom is put on display. And you don't just fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of this dark age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12. And that reality can can lead to two extremes. Some people deny this realm even exists. That's Bible fairy tale. I mean, the devil, come on. Or they go to the other extreme where they think that they can defeat the devil or demons with silly incantations or mantras like saying in Jesus' name and somehow the devil's going to listen to you. Neither of those are are the right approach, as you'll see in a minute. One writer said, this revelation that Daniel sees shattered any hope that he had that Israel would enjoy her new freedom and peace for very long. I mean, think about this. Daniel's 70 years is fulfilled. He gets the the promise about the future, the 70 weeks, and now Ezra has let the people go. He's burdened by the fact that not everybody goes, but then Daniel sees. He's able to see the, the spiritual forces at play. And now he understands what's going on. He understands the real enemy. And so Daniel is fasting in prayer. Look if you would at verse 2. He says, In those days I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Daniel is burdened by the fact that much of Israel is happy in Babylon that the Jews who returned to the land were facing spiritual opposition, the spiritual forces, and that they'll all face that same kind of conflict in the, in the near and far future. But, but added to that fact might be because he's received word back from Jerusalem that things aren't going well. Ezra also tells us that there's opposition to the people. The Samaritans oppose them, others oppose them. And so here you find Daniel in prayer and fasting. He... He ate no tasty food, he says, no bread of of pleasure. I don't know what that would be for you. It's like the king's delicacies. Um, He ate no pizza, no five guys, whatever your bread of pleasure is. He ate no meat. He didn't allow any wine to enter his mouth. He abandoned worldly comforts. This means he didn't use any ointment, which was oil for personal grooming, his beard or his hair. It was also for comfort. It soothed the skin in an arid climate. He's doing all of that, though, while others were feasting. Look, if you would, at verse 4. There's one more detail here besides the tigers. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was on the bank of the the great river, that is, the, the tigers, Daniel tells us that he stops the fast before the 24th day of the first month, which is Nisan, which is... March and April. So the first month is when Passover took place. That took place on the 14th day. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread followed in, in days 15 through 21. And so Daniel gets a visitor on the 24th day, three days later. So during this traditional remembering of God's deliverance and God's feasting, Daniel is able to see the spiritual battle that's taking place, that's that's arrayed against God's people. And he begins to think Passover and about God's deliverance in the past, and he's burdened by this vision, and so he goes to prayer and fasting, and he starts praying for God's deliverance in the future. Once again, 
Daniel's prayer is directed by the Bible. And he adds one final detail here, so we'll know where he is when he receives the vision. He says, while I was on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. So he's still outside of God's land. He's still in Babylon. And after three weeks of fasting, for some reason, he's beside the Tigris River. This is not part of the vision. This is where he's at, literally, whenever he, he sees the vision. Maybe there for some official reason. We don't know. Whatever what he sees there flattens him. And so you have Daniel's terrifying vision. And here's the description of this messenger, verses 5 and 6. And then you get Daniel's reaction, if you would, at verse 5. He says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold, His body was also like burl. His face had an appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Daniel is visited by a majestic being. And he says, I lifted up my eyes and saw him. It's a a figure of speech like saying, I looked up and there he was. And what he saw was glory. This being had the description of a man. This is very similar to the description of God in Ezekiel 1 and Jesus in Revelation 1. He was dressed in linen like the the priests of the Old Testament, which symbolized their their purity. He he was girded with a belt of pure gold at, at his waist. Euphaz is where the gold was from. And his body also, like burl, which means it radiated this blinding yellow color. And and his face was like the appearance of lightning, meaning it was an eye-striking, brilliant white, blinding. His eyes, the angel's eyes, were like flaming torches, similar to Jesus in Revelation 1.14. His arms were like polished bronze, and his voice like a deafening waterfall. I mean, no wonder these other men that are with Daniel flee, and and Daniel turns pale. The question, though, is who is this? And there are two views. And you could probably make both of them work in Scripture, but I think one works a lot better. It's, this is either the pre-incarnate Christ, because the description is so similar to Ezekiel and Revelation, or it's a mighty angel, unnamed, possibly Gabriel or another. But I think verse 13 gives us a clue that it's an angel. If you would at verse... 13, it says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days, and then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the king of Persia. I think that's a clue that this is an angel, because whoever this is, he was delayed by satanic forces. And I can pr- promise you that Jesus Christ is not even slowed down by the thought of a demon, much less delayed. He's God. So given that statement, this must be a mighty angel who's been very close to the presence of God, so close, and he's been there so long that he radiates God's glory himself. Now think of this. If a created being absorbs that much glory and radiates that kind of brilliance 
just by being in God's presence? Can you imagine what the source of that glory is like? Daniel says it's a frightening thing to see a glorified angel, but I can promise you it's much more fearful to fall into the hands of a living God, which the Bible says. Look if you would at verse 7. He says, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while these men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell upon them, and they, they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color was turned to a deathly parlor, and I retained no strength. Here's his response. The men with him didn't even see the angel, but they can sense that they're in the presence of holiness, so they run and hide themselves, just like Revelation whenever they cry for the rocks to hide them. Daniel is left alone to face the angel. He says his strength left him, his color drained away, his, his pallor. And it made him limp like a dead body. Verse 9. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to, to the ground. That means he just goes limp like a dead man. He sees him and he loses color. He hears him and he eats dirt. And you think you're going to argue with God when you stand before Him one day? What a ridiculous thought. There's no dirt in heaven, but I can promise you, whatever's on the ground, that's where your face is going to be. And many commentators note that this is similar to Paul's conversion. Only Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus and... And the others knew he was there, and they're speechless in Acts 9. And so the prophet now weakened uh, from three weeks of fasting is flattened by God's radiated glory, and, and he's now ready, he's now prepared to hear the, the message. And God prepares by the angel's strengthening explanation. And a strengthening explanation is by recap of Daniel's favor, by reminder of prayer's effectiveness, and then by revealing God controls the, the spiritual realm. Go to verse 10. He says, Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, Old Daniel, man of high esteem, Understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. So here's the first of Daniel's three strengthenings as God prepares him for the, for the prophecy. The angel here touches Daniel, and he goes from flat on his face to, to his hands and knees, but he's still trembling in, in fear. Now let's picture this. And then the angel speaks. He's only able to get up on his, on his hands and knees. And the angel says, Daniel, man greatly beloved of God, he's strengthening him. Which means one in whom God takes delight. And then he tells him to stand up because he's sent to him. Here's more evidence I think this is not Jesus because this angel was sent to Daniel. And Jesus is the one who sends angels. He's not sent by them. 
But what he calls him is strengthening to Daniel. There are only a few people in Scripture that carry this special moniker. Abraham was called a friend of God. Mary was one who found favor with God in Luke 1. Daniel, or David was a man after God's own heart. Daniel here is a man God holds in high esteem. That's encouraging to him. But there's also a staggering statement about prayer here, the effectiveness of prayer. Look if you look at verse 11. He said to me, O Daniel, a man of high esteem, that's before the Lord, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. The angel specifically says, I have come because of your words. I've been sent to you, Daniel, because you prayed. This means that this visitation would not have happened apart from Daniel's prayer, or it's in response to to Daniel's prayer. Daniel had been praying for for wisdom and and fasting whenever he gets the content of this vision, that it it has to do with spiritual things, and and God heard him. Don't miss this. I mean, in a chapter that reveals God's absolute sovereignty, in a book that declares God sets up kings and takes them down, here are words that says prayer matters, and prayer reaches the throne. And none of those facts about God or His control of the future negate the necessity or the effectiveness of prayer. God responds to it. In fact, it complements those truths. Prayer is means by which God accomplishes His mysterious will. And that kind of prayer is your duty and your delight. But the the willed plan of God, what He decrees, is above your pay grade. You don't even worry about that. You just pray. But don't ever think because God is sovereign and will accomplish His perfect prophetic plan that somehow that removes the need for prayer or that it is some fatalistic exercise that makes no difference because here is proof that's not the case. But He saves the best encouragement for for last. Remember what Daniel's troubled about. He's troubled about the spiritual realm. And so now he encourages him that God's in control of it. If you would at verse 11. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. Now what does all of that mean? What is the prince of Persia and Michael, the chief prince? Well, it's part of Daniel's strengthening that God reveals here. He controls even the spiritual realm. The angel tells Daniel his prayer was heard immediately. But there was a three-week delay, and that delay was purposeful. Not because God couldn't get to Daniel if he wanted to. 
It was a purposeful delay. The delay was to prepare Daniel and reveal to him something that he was unaware of. The fact that there that, that they're these spiritual forces. Remember, Daniel is, is in prayer about, he understands this vision as a whole. He knows it's about spiritual forces. And so God purposely delays to, to answer Daniel's prayer and teach him something about it. That's why Daniel needs strengthened. But the message doesn't stop there, right? I mean, verse 12, he says, Do not be afraid, Daniel. So this delay was purposeful so Daniel could realize this and be encouraged by the fact that God reigns even over, over this world. I mean, he starts with, Do not be afraid. And then he tells him why he shouldn't fear. I mean, if the point is that these demons are able to thwart or delay God's plan, then that wouldn't make any sense. I mean... If that was the case, then you should fear. Because Satan is stronger than God, but he's not. The angel is saying this spiritual realm is a reality, but you have no reason to fear it. Your voice was heard in heaven the minute that you humbled yourself, and there's, there's nothing that can keep that from, from happening. And this passage pulls back the curtain and, and shows what's taking place by, behind the scenes all the time. Look, if you would, at verse 20. Notice where this, this angel goes, goes back to. He says, then he says, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to, the, to fight against the prince of Persia, and I'm going, so I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. What's he saying there? He's revealing that conflict in the spiritual realm is an ongoing conflict. Not to tell Daniel to engage in it, He's saying the heavenly battle continues. This was going on, Daniel, before you ever even knew about it. And you're, you got a vision about it, you started praying about it, and then God delayed to teach you something about it, and I'm going right back to it. This point is the real power struggle is not fought where people, people often think it is. It rages continuously. It's going on right now. One writer said Daniel reveals the primary power struggles in the universe are not between earthly nations or opposing political parties but, or world religions, but against the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And, and I have a, the cliff notes of the Bible. God wins. <laughs> Here's where our themes of three themes of Daniel are, are very important. This information about spiritual warfare happens on the backdrop of chapter 9 proving to us that God's sovereign. He sets up kings, He takes them down, and, and He preserves His faithful ones. And so when you interpret this warfare, you do through that, that, through that lens, not the opposite. You don't read about spiritual warfare here and then interpret God by it, or God's purposes for His people, or whether He'll deliver them, or, or He's restrained in doing so. If he's not restrained by the most powerful men on earth, including the Antichrist that's coming, that's fueled by Satan himself, then his purpose and power is not restrained by some lower demon over Persia. And again, I want you to note that Daniel has to be told this is even going on in the spiritual realm. He's oblivious to it. He's totally unaware up to this point, which is why he's on his knees. And he had absolutely nothing to do with it. He wasn't even aware it was happening. Uh, he wasn't hunting demons or rebuking them in Jesus' name or binding them or any other such nonsense. This is all in God's realm, not Daniel. God is the one who informs Daniel. And even after God informs Daniel through the angel, he doesn't know any more than he, than he did beforehand. And he doesn't do anything different. 
He's just told this is going on in the heavenly realm. And this is what you're to do on, on earth. So when it comes to spiritual forces, you obey the scriptures and you let God fight the demons. We engage in this world like Ephesians 6, uh, with salvation, with truth, with faith, with godliness and prayer, because you can't see it. It's imperative that you have spiritual armor on. You're to walk around with spiritual armor, which is defined as salvation, and you know the truth, and you have faith, and you live godly lives, and you pray. That's how you battle demonic forces. That's what spiritual armor is. You can't see the spirits. You don't know what's going on with them. God controls them, so you walk around armored in, the, in this way because you don't know what's going on there. That's how we battle it. You don't use mantras or word statements that supposedly have magical power. Stephen Miller said you can deduce three things from this passage. Angels are real. There are good and evil angels. Angels can influence the affairs of human beings. And there's invisible, uh, invisible spiritual warfare being waged that involves them which is exactly what the Apostle Paul echoes when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Which leads us to God's final comforting reminder. He proves this truth to, to Daniel. It's beginning in verse 15 and goes through verse 1 of chapter 11. God prepares with this comforting reminder he tells him he's the one who fights these perpetual battles. The outcome is secure. It's written in the book of truth. And he provides an example proving that he's already done it and Daniel didn't even know about it. View what of verse 15. He says, When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. So remember, Daniel had risen to his hands and knees. He's on all fours. And when he hears that Israel faced this powerful spiritual battle, he's so overwhelmed by the reality of those spiritual forces, he falls back to the ground. He bows his head back down to the ground. And his mouth has to be touched by this angel so that he can even speak and, and tell the angel what's wrong with him. So the angel strengthens him a second time. Look at verse 16. And behold, one who resembled a human being was, uh, was touching my lips... And then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O oh my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I've retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. I mean, this is trauma. Daniel is in such trauma, here he bows to the ground, he says, I am helpless. He, he's trembling and shaking on his knees, and now he can't even hold his arms up. He goes back down on the ground. He doesn't even have enough strength to speak. And when he's enabled to speak by the angel, he, he says, how can a mere man speak to you, a heavenly being? I have no strength at all. And so the angel strengthens him a third time, and the third time is enough. Look at verse 18. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. 
I mean, we're not even in the vision yet. This is the preparation for the vision. And the angel calls him highly esteemed again. He reminds him, standing before God. He tells him not to fear again. And, and he adds this time, God's peace be upon you. Lewis Harton said it's like saying, you're safe, Daniel. It's okay. And then he ends with an echo of Joshua. Be strong and of good courage, Daniel. If Joshua can enter the land by trusting God to fulfill the covenant that he made to Israel, Daniel, you can hear this message and trust the same. Be, be strong and of good courage. And with that, Daniel is able to hear. And what he hears is what gives him the real power. Look, if you would, at verse 20. Then he said, so now the angel speaks. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? It's a rhetorical question. But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth, or in the book of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Here is where you put all of your trust in the spiritual battles, Daniel, or you, believer. Daniel is overwhelmed by the reality of this spiritual warfare, but the angel encourages him by saying, God is the one who fights these perpetual battles. King of Persia, the one of Greece that's coming. Greece hasn't even risen yet. He says the outcome is secure. It's written in God's book of truth. And he even provides an example of how he's already done it. He starts by saying, you remember why I've come? I've come because you prayed and God sent me. But I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia, the current empire, Persian Empire Cyrus. And after him, another one is coming in the future, the, the prince of Greece and their demonic forces that are influencing that one too that's coming. This is a rhetorical question calling Daniel to what he already knows about who controls this battle. And he's reminding him it's going to continue on. And he's already revealed it to him a few verses earlier. I came because you prayed and God heard in heaven. It's like saying, you know why I've come? God sent me. And I've come off the battlefield, Daniel, to meet you. I've left the battlefield because you prayed and asked me. And then I'm going to go back to the battlefield... But the battle's already been won by the Lord. It's already secured, so don't be afraid. And don't be overwhelmed by this vision I'm about to give you. Because just as God fights and prevails against spiritual forces related to the current empire, He'll do the same thing in the ones to come. And, and the victory has already been written down. Look at verse 21. He says, However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of, of truth. He, he says the outcome of all of these battles on earth and in the heavenly realm is inscribed. The future is foretold already. It's in the book of truth where God fixes His plan for Israel and for you and for the world. Keel says it's, a, it's the book in which God has designated beforehand according to truth. That's what it means. The, the history of the world as it shall certainly be unfolded. 
And God's people even have a prince assigned to them to ensure that it comes to pass. That's what Michael the archangel, he's called your prince, Israel's prince, God's people. God's people even have a special angel just for such, this, such a battle as this to ensure that it will take place. God decrees it, but he works through means. Michael is part of the means to bring about this fixed, inscribed plan. But I think the most encouraging thing for Daniel is probably what he shows him next. If you would at verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I rose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. That's, that's Michael. He tells him that God's already prevailed in this way. And Daniel didn't know anything about it. Verse 1 clearly goes with the end of chapter 10. It's profound insight into the spiritual realm. It says, while Michael is assigned to, to Israel, whoever this angel is that's speaking to Daniel went to take a stand with Michael in this spiritual realm in the first year of Darius the Mede, which was the first year of Cyrus. So I mean, this is revelation about the past. And what happened in the first year of Darius? It's when the Jews were released by Cyrus to go back into the land. And so when Cyrus was trying to make a decision about releasing the Jews and fulfilling what God promised in Jeremiah, there was a spiritual battle that went on that Daniel and nobody else knew anything about. And God's angelic forces were behind the scenes fighting and they prevailed because that was God's plan. Stephen Miller said, no doubt Satan fought against that moment because he knew that it would lead to the ultimate appearance of the Messiah. But verse 1 is evidence of what Daniel didn't even know was taking place and that God had already prevailed. And so here's an example that what God's written in His book, in the book of truth, will take place and that God controls even the spiritual realm. And the Jews had already been released in the first year and the return to Jerusalem... And that was foretold by Jeremiah the prophet. And Daniel was praying because of that, and it came to pass. So here you've got prophecy given to Jeremiah, Daniel reading that prophecy, Daniel praying, God using Daniel's prayer, and all of this is happening on the earth, and then there's a king making a decision to let them go. And while that's happening, there's stuff going on in the spiritual realm that nobody even knows about where God is prevailing there too, because His glory will be displayed on earth and his sovereign glory will be displayed in the spiritual realm. Both places God will triumph. And that's what he says to Daniel. So don't be afraid. Don't fear. And what Daniel couldn't see is now about to be revealed to him. And just like he did with the demonic forces over Persia trying to interfere He'll do it again with the demonic forces influencing the Greek empire that's going to rise. He'll do it again in the end times with the Antichrist because the God of Daniel is sovereign. and He controls history. He delivers his faithful ones. So once again, Daniel covers the same themes that he has the entire book. And while that repetition might seem unnecessary to, to me or you, 
I can promise you that repetition didn't seem unnecessary to Daniel or Israel in, in these, these moments or trying times. I mean, somebody that reads the book of Daniel and is looking for something new, I want something new, might be sitting there thinking, all right, all right, I get it. God, God is sovereign. He controls history, and He's going to rescue His, His faithful people. But, but you're not under Persian oppression. You're not under the, the rise of the Antichrist one day. Put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite who's been exiled, and in that very moment, they're not even all back in the land, and some of them have been Babylonianized, and you might want God to remind you over and over again that He's sovereign, that He controls history, and that He delivers His faithful ones, right? You might think of it how comforting it is, the familiar words of Scripture, truths about God that you already know, that you've heard over and over and over in your life when you're facing some trial and God reminds you of them again, and so they're fresh to you again because of what you're going through, and how comforting and encouraging that is, and that might be you this morning. You may already know a number of these things. Maybe you learned something new. I don't know. But God is personally reminding you of all of these things again, whatever you're facing. God is saying that the battles are perpetual. You won't overcome the battles in your life, physically or spiritually. But God says, I fight these battles. And He says the outcome is secure, even your life. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day. It's written in his book. And he even provides examples like this one, proving that he's already done it. If he's done it before, he'll do it again. And your task is not to figure out how to cast out demons or pray over them, people that have them or anything else. Your task is to trust this God who makes these promises in this book and be obedient to what he says and let him worry about those things. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we see the book of Daniel, wonderful truths that you have provided for us. This insight that you have given comes from your word and yet there are many things we confess to you we do not understand. We don't know the spiritual forces that are at work even this very moment causing people to be led astray, deceptions in their hearts. But you do, and you control them. And in your perfect timing, you bring about your perfect plan and your perfect will. So I pray, Father, just as you have commanded this morning, if, if someone is here in that condition, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth. Your spirit would do what only you could do. You would give sight to the blind. You would convict their their conscience of sin, righteousness, and of judgment, and you would give spiritual life so that they would cry out in faith and repentance for Jesus, and they'd be saved. And I pray for us as believers. While Satan does not have ultimate control over us. We, we can be influenced. Help us, Lord, not to fall to 
the cultures creep. Help us not to become Babylonianized. Help us to read and pray and hear. We might be living sacrifices to you and bring you glory in your great plan. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.